You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Now, sea otters are Pacific dwelling, and their historical range goes all the way from Baja, California, up the west coast of the United States and Canada. What can they teach us? Great attention grabber because everybody's like, otter, they're so cute. And I'm like, well, they're very, they're more than just cute uh, for the habitat, the oceans where they live because of keeping the sea urchin populations in check. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. All right. So out of the 140 species or so we've done, is there anything cuter than a sea otter? It's tough. We talked about baby tokens. Yeah. Oh, no. And baby musk oxen. Those are... Yeah, they're cute. But sea otters? Sea otters and their behavior, holding hands like the YouTube video I sent mm-hmm. you a few hours ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I think this this is definitely in the top five. It's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be. And just their faces, their behaviors, their playfulness, their intelligence. It's going to be a really fun podcast today. So yes, if you're not yes, currently yes. a Seattle fan, you will be by the time this podcast is over because these guys are darling and they do some really unique behaviors for mm-hmm. some, uh, marine mammals. That's a southern astounding. I, I can't wait till we get to it because they're just they're beloved. People love sea otters. I've seen sea otters in the wild. Uh, I was going deep sea fishing. You have. Out, yeah, out I of Morro Bay, California. Yep, I remember as years and years ago. Cool. But yeah, going by, seeing a couple sea otters floating floating around in Central California. So they are an amazing species. And Angie, I'll say a very important conservation story. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that. And as I was progressing through this week researching sea otters, I wasn't really aware of their conservation story and the fact that they are still considered endangered mm-hmm. by the IUCN. Mm-hmm. Overall, their conservation story is really good because it was it was really bad for a long time, which we'll explain. And then, it, and then through federal regulations and a lot of conservation organizations and scientists, we've been able to have some rebound. But they're mm-hmm. not out of the woods yet. And they are so critical for the oh, yeah. oceans. In oh, fact, we'll get there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in my oncology class, I always talk about them when we're talking about keystone species. So yeah. it'll be fun. They use tools. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. I, when I was doing nutrition, I wanted to know how the heck they eat sea urchins. Right, right. Yep, yep. Because if you're familiar with those spiky sea creatures, I don't know how anybody could eat that. <laughs> it's like you're trying to eat a porcupine. Exactly. You know? yes. Yeah. How, how do they do it? Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's going to be a fun, fun episode. Lots to cover. Uh, really quickly, just have to give a shout out to Katie uh, supporting us on Patreon this week. Thank you so much. The website's coming along. Uh, everybody can go check out the new episode pages. We Dan's doing an amazing job. We are updating the front page now where things are categorized. And then pretty soon we'll have hopefully a search option and kind of the new face of the, the website. So thank you. You're helping pay for that and also supporting conservation. So 
it just means so much to us that you support us any way you can with, you know, the likes, comments, and shares. So thank you. Absolutely, Chris. Of course, we have a special spot in our heart for all of our Patreon members. But even everyone who just listens to this podcast is a conservation hero. So many people reach out to us on a weekly basis, sending us emails and messages. And that's how we got hooked up with Dan, who is now helping mm-hmm. us with our website. So it really yep, yep. is a great community. And we just love doing this podcast. And I want to give a big shout out this week to a reviewer on iTunes, which was mm-hmm. super helpful. The username is the best one I've seen so far because yeah. the username is a parrot turtle penguin emoji. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, and a uh, parrot turtle penguin says that we are a diamond in the rough and that they heard about us through our buddy Corbin Maxey. And for those listeners that aren't familiar with our buddy Corbin Maxey, who we've done several crossover interviews with, he's an ama- amazing animal educator. And his podcast is called Animals to the Max. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We just love to support the community of animal podcasts, conservation heroes like yourself. And thank you, thank you to Parrot Turtle Penguin, who wants <laughs> awesome. us to keep doing podcasts on all yes. capital letters. So thank we will. you. We, we will. will. Yeah, we're definitely dedicated. And, you know, with Angie ready to give birth, you know, we'll, it's, we're going to mix it up a little bit while she's recovering and got some good, nice interviews, some specials coming out, and then we will definitely get back to the species when she's recovered. But let's jump into it. Description. I mean, the cutest, furriest otter you've ever seen. I mean, done. I Sold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so cute. Really, yeah. I mean, most pictures of them, you're going to see them floating on their backs in the ocean uh, with their circular furry faces, their short nose, rounded ears, rounded eyes, long whiskers. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that. That help them hunt for their food. Their hind legs are long. Uh, their paws are flat and webbed, which of course help them in the ocean. And their fur is usually brown in color with maybe some silver gray speckles and can range from a darker brown to more of a lighter cream brown, depending on the subspecies. But yes, I think overall, Chris, you summed it up in the beginning. Darn cute. Very. <laughs> and their fur is really thick. And I have a whole slide or two based on their their fur because it is the thickest in the animal kingdom. It is. It is. And that led to their decimation. And we'll get to that with conservation. I mean, that's why they were hunted, nearly hunted to extinction. But I mean, these are big too, Angie. I mean, the male sea otters can weigh almost 100 pounds, you know, or 45 kilograms, almost, almost just under five feet long or one and a half meters long. That's a big otter. This I'm used to seeing, I mean, I've seen sea otters, but I'm used to seeing like an Asian small clawed otter, you know, which, which what, that's what John has at his zoo. I've seen them at other zoos. They're smaller. Sea otters are big, are big. Well, they are for in the otter family or in the mustelid family. But interestingly enough, they're actually the smallest marine mammal. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and they don't have any blubber. They have their no. fur and we'll talk about their fur. Part of the reasons they're not as big as, per se, a seal or something like that, because let's be honest, seals and walruses and uh, have a lot of blubber, right, to right, help keep right, them yeah. warm. So I thought that was an interesting that, yes, for an otter, they're big, but to be living out in the ocean, it's kind of cold. Yeah. They're pretty yeah. small. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Now, sea otters are Pacific dwelling, and their historical range 
goes all the way from Baja, California, up the West Coast of the United States, Canada, Alaska, over the Bering Strait, into Russia, down to the northern island of Japan. That was their historical range. Current range, they're a little bit fragmented because of all the, the decimation that happened, you know, it was a hundred years ago when they, they really started to conservation efforts on them. So you have populations in California, then there's a fragmented break until you get to Washington and Canada, British Columbia. Then you get back up to Alaska over the Aleutian islands, over to Russia, and then down the Kuril islands, but they're no longer like off the coast of Northern Japan. They're off the Northern islands of Japan, but not that, that, that big one. So they're coming back. I mean, they're coming back, but slowly. The West Coast of the United States, we're going to talk about the struggles because they, they are still in deep trouble there. You know, the ones I saw off California, they're still in big, big trouble. Well, and don't they typically stay pretty close to shore within a kilometer, less than a mile to shore in general? Yeah, they're not really like deep ocean dwelling, right? I mean, the, you're talking kelp forest is like where they want to be. That is where that's their primary habitat. And we're going to talk about it, you know, jumping into why care. If we go back to episode 183, Enric Sala, uh, the National Geographic Explorer, we talk about ocean conservation and we specifically talk about sea otters and kelp forests and why sea otters are so important. The gist was, you know, sea otters eat sea urchins. Sea urchins eat kelp. And so when you remove the otters, sea urchins proliferated and they decimated the kelp forest. So sea otters were helping keep that in balance. And, there, and then there's other things like other fish and things that help, but sea otters are a big part of that. So uh, Dr. Sala talks about his work with National Geographic. It is a fascinating interview. But I mean, yeah, you even you said you know, before we got going that you remember these being a huge keystone species, learning about that in your classes. Yeah, I always use it as a, a great attention grabber because everybody's like, an otter, they're so cute. And I'm like, well, they're mm-hmm. very, they're more than just cute uh, for the habitats and the oceans where they live because of keeping the sea urchin populations in check. And when they're not mm-hmm. around, kelp forces potentially can be decimated. And we care about kelp forests for several reasons, as far as being a habitat for several other species. But more recently, it's been shown that kelp forests help sequester, which means fancy word for capture and absorb, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere when they photosynthesize. Like trees, right? We don't want to yeah. cut we don't want to cut down the Amazon forest for several reasons, but right. Reducing our carbon footprint is one of them because all those trees absorb and utilize the extra CO2 in the air. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The CO2 in the air, it's similar in the ocean. So we need these kelp forests. And if there's sea urchins that are munching away and damaging them and we don't have them, that's more CO2 in the atmosphere, which means more global climate change and more problems for us. Mm Mm-hmm. All yeah, of us, no. all of us species, animals, <laughs> yeah. humans, all of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're 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 critical to the the ecosystems off the coastal United States, Mexico, Canada, you know, and then Russia. So that's why you know sea otters are so important ecologically. But 
talking about their threats, Angie, you know, climate change drives this. Again, when we go to the ocean, it's one of the things we look at and talk about. But I'll explain two situations that are driving down populations of sea otters. One of the leading causes of sea otter mortality in California. Now, this is a subspecies, the southern sea otter, which I'll get to in evolution. And they're in trouble. There's only about 2,300 of them left in the world of this subpopulation. But great whites, what they're finding is these juvenile great whites come in, attack the sea otter, bite them, kill them, but they don't eat them. They, I don't know if it's mistaken or they just see it. They go up and bite it, maybe get a bunch of fur. Like, no, that doesn't taste good. And they go, they move There's off. There's no blubber on there, right? It's no. all, fur, all fur. Yeah, all fur and bone. And mm-hmm. so it's like a great white. It's like, oh, okay. And the sea otter is killed, but the great white swims off. Why they are seeing this. There's a recent study out of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Which, just to interject really quick, have you been there? I, I have. Yeah. Long time okay, ago. I've been there a long time ago. Yeah. It was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Monterey, when I used to sell drugs legally as a pharmaceutical <laughs> rep. That's right. <laughs> legal drugs. Legal drugs. Yeah, when I was peddling medications for a pharmaceutical company, Monterey was in my territory. So I loved Monterey, California. Oh, that drive. So beautiful. Yeah. Oh, and my... I'd always spend the night. Yeah, and my dad it. took me to some restaurant that was like overlooking the ocean and it was kind of fancy. I remember we we were dressed in flip flops and shorts, like our typical Michigan farmer selves. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, oh, it was just so beautiful there. Yeah, it's one of my favorite favorite parts of California. So if you go out to California, go through Monterey Bay. It's just uh, it's beautiful. So the Monterey Bay Aquarium, because you have you have the bay there, and there's the the trench, and so there's a there's a diverse ecosystem. Orcas come through there. Great whites are proliferate. Proliferate a lot. There's a lot of great whites there. So the study is, you know, with climate change, the ocean temperatures are rising. So great whites are actually ranging further north because they don't like the super tropical warm waters, right? They they would like them a little bit more cooler, right? So they are moving north. So they're moving north into where sea otter habitat is. Now, while we love our great whites, we want to see them grow in population. There's, this is where like all of this human impact, you can start seeing it all because it's like a domino effect because the earth's warming, great whites are going into territories that it normally, you know, sea otters would be mixing with great whites anyways, but now they're like really this, this, this population that's left of Southern sea otters is being overrun with juvenile great whites. So they've really, these these juvenile great whites used to just be off Southern California, where I grew up. You know, that's where they normally were, but now they're shifting north. So it's like 300 miles north is where they are. Then you throw in lack of kelp beds, which is another issue because sea otters have been absent for so long. So these kelp forests aren't as numerous as they used to be. So there, there isn't a habitat for sea otters to really hide or be protected from. So these great white sharks are swimming around. They see something on the surface. They come up and bite it, realize it's not something they want to eat and swim off until they find something else. But then there's a dead sea otter. And when you only have 2,300 of them left, losing one is makes an impact on the population. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one big threat that they're seeing in this population. The second one, again, due to climate change and these ocean temperatures rising, are these toxic algae blooms, so red tides. And we're seeing these more and more in frequency. You just had one in Florida, like that green sludge one, and you've had some red tides off the coast. I mean, Oh, yeah, off the Gulf Coast for sure. Yeah, they had to close a lot of beaches and... With the closure of beaches means closure of all of the small businesses up and down mm-hmm. the coastline. So, yeah, yeah it's I mean, definitely it, something in Florida. They're they're really trying to research and get to the bottom of how to why? reduce it. Why, yeah, why? Why? Yeah, of course. Why? Yeah. If it is man made, and there's some debate about that from runoff mm-hmm. uh, from some of our lakes, or mm-hmm. is it just the ocean temperature, which of course rising is man made as well. But what is what is the the reason behind it? What can we do? And then obviously, how can we help uh, the, the economy get back yeah. to where it was? Well, I know it's still baff- you're right. It's still baffling scientists. But so what this algae does is it consumes oxygen. So in these red tides, there is less oxygen, so that starves fish, other sea life. They also release deadly toxins or harmful toxins. There's one specifically that they're finding having an effect on, on sea otters. Domaic acid, it's accumulating in shellfish, sardines, crabs, and that is what sea otters like to eat. Well, what this acid does is it's causing heart disease in young otters. Interesting. So you're seeing this increase in red tides. It's food source, shellfish, other things are accumulating this acid. The sea otters are eating it and it's killing them off. Young, young sea otters should be healthy, but they're dying of heart disease. So what they found in this study was in the last uh, 15 years, so it was a study from 1998 to 2012, 13, of all sea otter deaths, 28% and this is summing this all up, 28% were caused by great whites. Of direct and indirect causes, infectious disease was 63%, which of that, this heart disease was responsible for over 40% of death. Well, yeah, Chris, and I was reading a little bit about toxoplasmosis in sea otters, mm-hmm. which is can be an infectious disease resulting from a parasite that can kill them. Uh, but it's commonly found in house cats. And although humans are a little susceptible to it, typically what happens unless you're pregnant or immunocompromised, if you're just a normal household cat owner, litter box scooper mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, myself, mm-hmm. you get this, you get it, and then your body fights it off. You don't even know you have it, and you yeah. and you build antibodies and titers for it. In fact, f- during pregnancy, they checked me for it, and they're like, "Oh, mm-hmm. you have you have the antibodies. You've, you've been exposed to toxoplasmosis." <laughs> yes, and I cats, was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been scooping cat litter for, for years, years. Uh, ever. Uh, yeah. Of course, being pregnant, I always just as an excuse to be extra careful, and so John uh, takes over more of the duties. But at any rate, researchers did not understand how this was happening in some of these sea otter populations, but they think it's from runoff from our wastewater. Hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, that's another one. Yep. So it's 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 definitely having an effect. So really, you know, infectious disease, great whites. That's why you're seeing this species still endangered. And I would even say, when I was reading this, this domaic acid in red tides, like our seafood 
Like, what about our health? Right. You know, what about all the plastic contamination, which we're going to get to July this year again, and then things like this. So, I mean, I love my seafood, right? It's just, yeah, they're just, they're just under a lot of pressure, this animal, especially that Southern population. All right, Angie. So with that all being said, and there is good news. I mean, they're doing, the, the population's doing well, especially the Northern and, and the uh, the Asian population, which we'll talk about. They're doing well. It's the Southern sea otter population off California that's really struggling. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Now, again, this is a mustelid. We just did one, but oh, well, we love them. So <laughs> we just did the Wolverine. When I was reading about some of the behaviors that we'll touch on, I couldn't help thinking about the honey badger. Oh, I love that. Honey badger. badger. Still, they don't care. Still our, still our favorite muscle. Yeah. It just has to be. It just has to be. Uh, I was even talking to little Wyatt about it the other day. And he's like, could a honey badger kill an elephant? And I was like, ah, I don't know if it could kill an elephant, but, you it know. Would he, <laughs> it would try. Yeah, he wouldn't care. It would try. Could he, could he kill a rhino? And so I was saying, well, buddy, I don't know. I mean, they do go for the testicles of males. I've ever reading that, especially like Yowzers. buffalo and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but probably not. But anyways, I just the mind of a six-year-old blows me away. He's just he's like it's imagining fun. this yes. tough, tough badger killing everything on earth. And I'm like, no, it just doesn't care. It just doesn't care. It's just tough. Yeah. Very tough. Very tough. Now, they are the family mustelids, but the subfamily is Lutrinae, which is otters. And we've done otters before. We did the North American river otter. We talked about the Asian small clawed. The giant otter we're going to have to do one day. That would be fun. Uh, Eurasian, hairy-nosed, Congo clawless, smooth-coated, neotropical. The one that caught my eye, Angie, is this marine otter. And I was like, okay, you have sea otters, but now you have a marine otter, which you would think would live out in the ocean. but these are otters that live in South America. So off the, they're probably closely related to sea otters, but off Peru, Chile, and Argentina. And they live in both saltwater, freshwater ecosystems. So they're not purely oceanic like sea Interesting. otters. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They go back and forth. So cool. yeah, it was really cool. So I'd like to learn more about them, but, but I saw that. Now, sea otter's scientific name is Anhydra lutris. And again, you have the three subspecies. So the Asian, so we'll start way in the West. Asian ranges from the Kuril Islands, which is north of Japan, to Russia's Commander Islands in the Western Pacific Ocean. So that's where they are. And I believe that's currently the biggest population of sea otters. Of the three. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of the three. Then you have the northern sea otter, which is the Aleutian Islands, which is off Alaska, down British Columbia, Canada. Yeah, I was down. just calling that one like the Alaskan sea otter. Yeah, yeah, down to Washington, Oregon area. Mm-hmm. Then the southern sea otter, which is just now in southern and central California. So that's where they are. Yeah, like the that's California the one, the sunshine yeah. one. <laughs> yep, 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 the ones I've, I got to see. Now, mustelids, we just did this a few weeks ago. The oldest known, you know, dates back 30 million years. Around 14 million years ago is when mustelids like really boomed because we talked about this in Wolverines. There was a climate transition, took place over thousands of years where forests 
really withdrew and you had more grasslands. So rodents and lagomorphs boomed. And so, so did mustelids because they're the main predator. Now, mustelids, again, you have the honey badger, weasels, ferrets, minks, and the wolverine. It's about 60 species of, of mustelids. So we're definitely not done with them. We, we love them. They're <laughs> no, fun. They're fun. I had a lot yeah, of fun yeah. this week. Really, it never, it never gets old. Nope, nope. Now, just jumping in some facts about them, Angie. I mean, uh, lifespan, average, I read 10 to 12 years, live up to 25 years. Um, so that's not too bad for, for a small little predator. Yeah. I think the oldest one at the Seattle Sea Aquarium was 28 years. Of course, in the wild, things are tougher and it's believed to maybe reach 20, 23 years maximum in the wild. Mm -hmm. But like you said, on average, 10 to 12. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not too bad for, for little guys. Uh, Some physiology. I mean, I read they have a decent sense of smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, eyesight's okay. Underwater's okay, but not as good as seals. Like they don't have like special vision for underwater. Uh, hearing's okay. I mean, think about those senses, like what they really need. It's, it's, I think we'll talk about it nutrition, but the whiskers, right? The whiskers and feeling touch. Yeah. Chris, those really long whiskers are super sensitive mm-hmm. and they're going to help the sea otter, sea otter find prey in dark or murky waters as a sense of touch for the most part. Uh, and of course they'll also search around with their cute little front paws. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was, I was, I always go back to walrus, you know, I remember talking about that, like how they use the whiskers underneath to find mollusks and stuff mm-hmm. to eat. Yeah. It's just, I could see them doing that, doing that. Now you mentioned their pelt. You said no blubber. They don't have blubber. These water temperatures range from 34 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 to 10 degrees Celsius. Yeah, it's especially cold. up there in Alaska and yeah. Russia. Yeah. In, in the snow, in the winter. Mm-hmm. I mean, so how yeah. do they survive it? How, how does, how, what's this pelt do? Well, it's really, really, really thick. It's the thickest yeah. in the animal kingdom. So on land or in the water. And to go down to the microscopic level, if you will, there's over 150,000 strands of hair per square centimeter. So it's really dense, really, really dense. There's nothing close. I mean, what do we, ha- I, I don't remember it, but the chinchilla. Chinchilla was, yes, I think they Pretty have dense. the dens- densest fur on land. On land, okay. And then sea otter, because you mentioned sea otters in that episode. I did, I that. yeah. I was doing yeah, a little yeah. foreshadowing, right? Yeah, you were, you were, you were. You were. <laughs> but along with this dense, dense fur, they have long guard hairs that are waterproof. So that helps, right? Stay warm. Anybody who's been in a wetsuit before understands that philosophy. And then they have a short underfur that help keep them dry underneath that. Mm-hmm. And because they're basically waterproof the cold water doesn't really touch their skin. And so that's going to minimize heat loss from the skin. And if you think of a lot of other mammals, they'll shed their fur uh, during different seasons and things like that. The seattle, this doesn't really happen to. They have thick, thick fur year round. And of course they need to gradually replace some hair, but they don't have like a distinct molting season. Like when we think of seals or walruses and things like that. As probably most of our listeners know, sea otters are known for their grooming. 
mm-hmm. whether you've seen them under human care or out in the wild or YouTube videos of them, they do a lot of grooming, keeping their fur clean. A lot of times they're, they're messy eaters, which we'll talk about. So they're getting any food particles. <laughs> I can totally relate, relate to that, yes. especially being pregnant right now. Like every sweatshirt or shirt I have has food stains on it that drop on, <laughs> on my big old belly. And I've just, I've long given up. But yep. Sea Otter is very diligent, and they continue to groom and keep their hair nice and clean. And uh, they have a lot of they have loose skin too, so they can reach most parts of their body to help them keep keep clean as well. Yeah, and then reading about that, it, it was interesting because I don't know if we've come across this. Maybe in polar bear because their their hair are hollow, right? That helps trap air, right? Wasn't that that's what, and that's why it like reflects white, but they're actually mm-hmm. yellow. Yeah, because it traps air. I remember that. Similar to here, the guard hairs trap air, which provides insulation, which they say is like four to five times the insulation of fat or blubber. So that that pelt is the reason they can survive these temperatures no problem. No problem. Well, and two, with the air being trapped in the fur, it makes them be like a little bit more buoyant. But sea otters also have a really large lung capacity, around two and a half times larger than an animal of the similar size. And they think that that, along with some of the guard hairs, helps keep them buoyant. And that's when we see them on their backs, holding hands, cute things like that we'll be talking about. That part of that reason is these these extra-sized lungs to hold the air and then some of this fur. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, talk about that that lung capacity. I mean, I read, you know, we're going to start getting into how they, they hunt and nutrition. They can dive about a minute, but they have recorded one that lasted up to four minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty good for a little mammal. I mean, I can't hold my air for four minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's just they're really they are they are made for the ocean, right? They have nostrils and ears that can close when needed. Like if you think there's like of a big storm or something and they're amazing swimmers they've got that streamlined body and tail they're fully webbed feet and they're pretty fast too they'll swim about nine kilometers per hour underwater so i mean that's pretty good in using their tail for propulsion and helping them steer and control their motion which is really cute if you've ever seen sea otters like play and roll around and things like that but all of this is really important because they spend a lot of time foraging. Fif- up to 55% of their time in, in life mm-hmm. is spent looking for food. I'm pregnant, so I, I can I can top that number right now. <laughs> we had uh, we got uh, John got pad thai the other night, and I thought I got some noodle dish, and of course I ate yeah. mine. And he saved his for lunch the next day and <laughs> didn't make it through the night. <laughs> no, he got up in the morning and I was like, babe, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> and it, when I started like that, he thinks it's like going to be really, really bad. So when yeah. I told him it was just that I ate his lunch in the middle of the night on one of my <laughs> foraging <laughs> bathroom breaks. You're eating for two. Yeah. He said, well, he was annoyed, but he's like, that's understandable because I'm a very good pregnant lady. I don't have any of those cravings or anything. So crazy he hasn't had to like go to the store and get me pickles or yeah, yeah, yeah. ice cream or anything like that. So overall, he has it pretty easy. But we also keep making the mistake of letting me go to the grocery store and shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so oh, bad. Yeah. You come back. <laughs> oh, my. And I, and I have other kids. So I'm like, oh, no, this is for the kids. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so yeah, right. bad. It's so bad. So I told him, I'm like, please. And he he loves to shop too. So I'm just like, I think I you need to go. Like it's this is it's getting out of, it's getting out of control. But we have a but back to sea otters. So they're yeah, so yeah, incredible. Yeah. Is that they spend all this time looking for food, and they're out in the oceans. Like they spend pretty much their entire lives out in the ocean. I mean, they'll come out on the land a little really. bit here and there, mm-hmm. uh, but they're built with all these sea adaptations to just be out in the ocean. And when they are on land, if you see them at an aquarium or in the wild on land, uh, they're they're they have a rolling gait like a, a typical otter, but they're pretty clumsy. And I imagine, uh, su- yeah, yeah, they're super cute though. Well, it's, it's it's good. It's a good uh, segue into to like what they eat because you were talking about they they hunt most of the time. I mean, they eat anywhere from up to like forty percent of their body weight a day to maintain body temperature. Right. When I read that, yeah. I was a little bit jelly, jealous. <laughs> Just like, that would be. I couldn't oh even my. imagine. Like, what is that? That's like that's 35, insane. 40 pounds a day of what I, that's like, that's what you, a horse doesn't even eat that much. No, no, not no. even close. Not even close. No. So for me, for 200, I'm 230 pounds. So 10% to 23. Um, yeah. So 40 pounds of food. I mean, a, a horse day. is like 2%. I mean, you can't even get them Whatever to eat 3% is. of their body weight. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> so they eat a lot. They eat a lot. Uh, but they, you know, they they consume all sorts of different food. It's like a buffet out there for them. Yeah, they're not picky. That's, yeah. No. I mean, all the shellfish that you can think of, mussels and clams. They eat crabs, the sea urchins, anything they can catch. Sardines, I read, if they can catch fish. So they do eat quite a bit. Um, I did read they can dive up to 37 meters, which is about 120 something feet. Mm-hmm. And I found this interesting because any, anytime you have a marine mammal, I always think about what they drink. So most of their water comes from their food, obviously, because they're eating this seafood, which is full of water. Uh, they do drink seawater, but they have really large kidneys. Mm, interesting. Which filters out the salt mm-hmm. and they excrete it in urine. So. That's why the ocean's so salty. I don't know. <laughs> it's like whenever I'm out in the ocean, get a mouthful of salt water. Well, Chris, what I also found fascinating as far as nutrition and behavior goes is that seattles are the only marine mammal that'll catch fish with its front forepaws, those cute little paws, mm-hmm. rather than its teeth. Okay. And it grabs them, huh? Yeah. I know. They, they got to be quick because fish are. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They're like yeah. super, they're amazing. Hunters, but contrary to popular belief, uh, sea otters are not going to eat starfish that often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they will—they've been observed munching on kelp, but they're complete carnivores, and the kelp yeah. will pass through them uh, undigested. They can't use the nutrients of it, so uh, those starfish and kelp are not something that they would typically be consuming. However. Sea urchins are. They love themselves some sea urchins. All right. So how do they how do they eat them? That was your question. Yeah, Chris. Uh really carefully is the answer. <laughs> uh for those of you that aren't super familiar with sea urchins, they're like covered in spines, like a whole porcupine. But a sea otter will actually crunch and bite through their underside or the underbelly. 
mm-hmm. of the sea urchin where they do have spines, mind you, but they're the shortest. And so they just deal with it, spit it out, and then they lick with use their tongue to like clean out the inside of the sea urchin shell. Hmm. And in general, when sea otters are eating, whether it's sea urchins, clams, other shellfish that have things that they need to clean out, mm-hmm. there's little bits and particles of their food remnants all over their fur, all over the mm-hmm. ocean. And some researchers have reported that different ocean-dwelling birds will come and clean up their messes for them. Okay. And so <laughs> when we talk about either uh, cooperation or some t- some types of like mutualistic behavior. Yeah, mutualistic, yeah. Yeah, that these birds really appreciate their messes and they're, they're leaving some food behind for other critters, which is another ecosystem role if you think about it. Now, tool use... Very unique. I mean, it, it is something. Uh, there's one. It's uh, we gotta do it. Corvids. I cannot wait to do when you get back. Not the COVID, but the right. Corvids, the crows, mm-hmm. or you know, ravens. We'll do one of them. Ravens. We'll do one of them. They use tools, which fascinates scientists. Sea otters use tools, which is fascinating. I mean, fascinating, yes, and also statistically really small. In general, very few mammals use tools. Right. And so sea otters are in a class of their own because they exhibit tool use. And what they do is they'll collect these hard mollusks or clams. Mm -hmm. Mussels. Mussels, sea snails, other things like that. And they will break open the prey items with a hard rock. And they'll just bash, 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 get the crack open the exoskeleton or the shell or whatever it is. And it's not like this is seen once in a while or anything like that. Like this is a very, very well defined, well researched and mm-hmm. seen behavior in all the subspecies of otter, sea otters. And it's, it's, uh, what do they say? It's premeditated to the point right. where some otters, when they're diving, and swimming around, they'll hold this rock on their like chest with their paws. And they utilize rocks a little bit differently depending on the prey species that they have. Sometimes otters will hold the rock on their chest and then drive the prey, use their paws and drive the prey into the rock. Uh, sometimes they basically will uh smash the prey with a rock mm-hmm. in different locations. And they have these loose folds of skin and often they will utilize the same rock over and over and take this rock with them and, and carry it like in the loose folds of their skins on their <laughs> like pockets. Mm-hmm. And then, and then when they're collecting whatever shellfish or whatever their mollusks they're eating, they'll put that in a little pocket too, and then go to the surface and then start the rock chest bashing or whatever <laughs> they're doing, which once again, makes another mess, which a lot of this, the ocean birds are like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and then of course they have to spend time grooming themselves. If they're using their chest or as, as a table, if you will, as a cutting board, yeah. smashing yeah. board. <laughs> yeah. So it is really, really incredible. And the other, the other prey item that I think is really cool is an abalone. And abalone. Yeah. Abalone, yeah. And that's like yeah. the little sea creature that clings to rocks. Mm-hmm. Sea otters are able to remove those, pry those off of the rocks. But but I was reading that 
they they have to pull them off this rock on multiple dives down and they're really persistent about it. And this they the Albalones cleaned the rock with a force equal to four times four thousand times their body weight. So the sea otter has to be super persistent, super strong, super cunning to remove it, right? So it's just just incredible. Angie, I remember abalone. They, I think it became somewhat endangered because we used to eat it as when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I remember the shells are beautiful, but yeah, they are extremely strong. You need. I remember the abalone knife. Like, you know, divers had to really go and work them off the rocks. So you're talking about a, a small little mammal with, with those paws, cute little paws that are webbed, pulling at it, pulling at it, pulling at it till they could get it, and then just rewarded with a a big meal. Can't wait to get into more of the behaviors really quick. They are preyed upon, obviously, by great whites and the southern sea otters. We've talked about that. Orcas will, uh, seals will, and then bald eagles may grab some young. So, you know, they are preyed upon as a smaller mammal. But so many behaviors, Angie. So we got to get going on it. I'm glad we kind of got through some of the other stuff. There are some that I'm just fascinated. This is why I think a lot what makes them so endearing too, some of the things they do. Oh, yeah. We've talked a lot about it already. They do a lot of the grooming to keep their fur nice and insulated and clean. They use tools, as I just mentioned. They're out on the open ocean, riding storms out, whatever's happening for most of their lives. Uh, I mean, they can go on land, but if the weather's really bad, but in general, they're just out there being active and they're typically diurnal. So they're out foraging during the day when they can see. Uh, but other than that, they're, they're out in the oceans, they're sleeping out there uh, and resting. And they do it a lot in the kelp beds to have, to provide protection for themselves. Like you mentioned, Chris, so without the kelp beds, they're really, really are in open water. And now, Chris, as they're often depicted, like in books, children's books and things like that, uh, sea otters are pretty sociable creatures. They are not considered pack or herd animals, uh, but they can be found congregating together, especially if there's bad weather and, of course, during breeding season and things like that. And when they do congregate together, they'll all float in what is known as rafts. So a group yes, of sea otters, yeah, yeah, so yeah, cute, right? yeah. A, gr- yeah. a group of sea otters in the ocean together hanging out is called a raft. And it's been reported anywhere from like 10 individuals to even up to a hundred. Uh, and what they'll do when they're resting or feeding, they might wrap themselves in sea kelp to help basically act as an anchor, right? To keep them or a line to keep them in the habitat where they want to be and not floating off away into the current. And then the cutest behavior is if kelp's not available uh, to hang out with their friends or for the moms and the pups is they will hold paws or yes. hold hands. Yes. And that's yes. the video I sent you off. You'll definitely have to yep. put it on yep. your, uh, on the show notes. It's actually uh, about 10 years ago. It was one of the top, animal videos on YouTube. It's been surpassed, but it's a video of Nyack and Milo. And Nyack was actually a survivor of the 1989 Exxon Valdez. Oh, Valdez. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Up in Alaska. Yep. And so they're they're the Vancouver Aquarium and there's a cute video of Nyack and Milo holding paws that, yeah, it's one of, it was one of YouTube's most popular animal videos. I mean, 
tens of millions of uh, views. It's been surpassed probably by just like a silly cat video since then. But for the longest time, it it was it was the record holder. Adorable. Yeah, it's the one I sent you, and it's just just precious. So that is that is a true behavior. They will hold hands to help basically not float away from each other. And in general, Seattle's like other like their other uh, otter cousins are very playful, fun to watch. Uh, and although they may spend time alone hunting and grooming and doing things like that, they can also be found together. Seattle's aren't highly vocal creatures. They show their love through holding paws, if you will. <laughs> but uh, there's been about nine recognized vocalizations from squeals to coos to whines growls, snarls, whistles, screams, things like that. And of course, as a mustelid, scent is really important to help recognize one another and to help mm-hmm. uh, males and females communicate about where they are in the reproductive cycle. Because basically each otter has its own distinct scent and it can tell the others its gender, its age, identity, things like that. Which, for being out in the ocean, I think is really impressive because... Well, it just it triggered me to think about Jonathan Cowart's work, Dr. Cowart now, mm-hmm. uh, with his PhD work on manatees. I remember that was his initial project was these female manatees are in estrus and they get a swarm of males chasing her, trying to breed with her. And it's like, how do they know where she's at? How do they locate her? In the ocean. Is it, in the ocean. Is it pheromones behavior he wanted to do this whole project and we really sat down and thought about it and said jonathan that is going to be insane i don't know how we do this <laughs> you guys <have laughs> how do you, you do said that the same thing to me with my project too it's like, <laughs> yeah let's let's come, dial it back come let's back to earth back. you cute little let's, grad student yeah uh, we don't have that much money <laughs> yeah we don't have nasa's budget we don't have if, any money actually so <laughs> If we had NASA's budget, we might be able to solve that problem. But uh, no, yeah, it, it's fascinating how these animals know and communicate chemically in open a water. marine environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is some mechanisms. We just don't know what the heck it is yet. But for all of you budding young researchers out there that want to figure it out. <laughs> Good luck. No, go to grad school, present it to yeah. your advisor, and maybe you'll find like a really rich one that has the yeah, money to help no. you learn. Maybe it's sea otters, but I, I don't know. Manatees, we'll see. But no, it's fascinating. And so obviously that leads to reproduction. How do we get these cute little pups? Yeah, Chris. So sea otters in general are polygamous. A male is going to mate with multiple females uh, throughout the year. Overall, they breed year round. But depending on the subspecies, there's peaks of birth in May and June. In the like in the Alaskan sea otters, when the climate's of course warmer, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a peak birth period in California is going to be in January to March. During breeding season, a male is going to defend his territory, and if another male encroaches, there's going to be splashing and vocalized vocalizations and some fights. And in general, of course, the more dominant, the older, the more wiser, skilled male will keep his territory and then the, the the females they just swim about freely from in between the male's territories doing their thing and as these females are swimming through the male's territories when a male does find a female that's in estrus it's receptive their courtship can be playful uh sometimes a little bit of spatting here and there and the bond will last for about three days or so for the extent of her estrus 
Now, after the courtship's over and the breeding begins, it's not really all fun and games all the time. Now, Chris, we all know that sea otters are adorable and cute. And during their courtship, when they're playing around, it's pretty precious. Mm -hmm. But it's not all fun and games. For the actual act of breeding, it can be somewhat aggressive. Uh, The male may hold on to the female's head or her nose uh, during copulation. And so she can sometimes have scars on her face. And keep in mind, these are marine mammals. They are mating or breeding out in open ocean water. And so in general, it can just be a little tough. Um, Sometimes like the poor female's head might get pinned underwater for a little bit. (laughs) Not very romantic. (laughs) No. The the male otter actually has a very large baculum. Uh That's the penile bone. And so I'm not sure if that's just because they're in open water, so they need to remain together, uh, things like that. Um, So... It rarely, the breeding rarely results in any death or issues like that. But like I said, mm-hmm. there sometimes can be, you know, the female can get like a little scratched up and things like that. A little that. roughed up. Mm-hmm. But it's all worth it in the end when you get those cute little sea otter pups, of course. But before we get to those pups, the sea otters have unique a unique gestation similar to other mustelids where they have delayed implantation. So the fertilization Mm -hmm. will take place. The embryo will pause at a very early developmental stage, not attached to the uterus. And the female goes about with her life and she probably fattens up. She's away from the male. She's doing her own thing. She's holding hands with her friends, whatever. Uh, And, and then there's some signal in her body that says, okay, embryo attached to my uterus and start growing. And it does. And so when you look in the literature, the gestation period of a sea otter, depending on the species, can be four to 12 months. So it all, basically all that depends on the pregnancy, the actual growth of, of the embryo into the fetus is about four months. Mm-hmm. But it can the overall pregnancy can last a lot longer depending on if that how long that embryo is in diapause. Or diapause, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. really, really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of that depends on the environment and nutritional resources, things like that. Uh, but once again, these sea otters are out in the water. The birth takes place in the water. The female typically has just one pup that's about one to two and a half kilograms or three to five pounds. So. Pretty decent size, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, at birth, in order to survive, the pups, their eyes are open, they have some teeth, and they already have that thick baby fur. Yeah, like they've got a – that's that's an environment where – Yeah. Yeah, like baby seals are on beaches. Correct. And they have time to fatten up and learn all that. Baby sea otters, it's like, here we go. Sink or swim, right? That's 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 the real sink or swim story right there. It you know? is, but their fur that they're born with actually helps them swim or float. Mm-hmm, the mom mm-hmm. will spend a lot of time after birth grooming her pup and loving on it. And after this grooming, the fur, ha- because it's so dense, it's retained so much air that some describe it as like the pup can't sink. 
Like it's like yeah, a cork. Okay. Like it almost like yeah. you think of a, a cork floats because there's extra air pockets in it. So just really, really cool. And um, and then the mom's providing very nutritious milk that's high fat mm-hmm. uh, to help keep it warm, about 25% fat. So that's, oh, wow, okay. that's really high. Yeah. And the mother will nurse the pup anywhere from six to eight months, depending on depending on the food availability. And then, and of course, depending on the subspecies. So like the Alaskan or the Northern sea otter uh, is going to stick with mom for a little bit longer, uh, maybe up to a year. Mm-hmm. And sea otter moms, they're award winners. They take really good care of their pups. Yeah. They spend a lot of time grooming them, a lot of time, of course, nursing them. And because of this awesome diet that they have, and tool use and things like that, a pup will learn from its mom how to swim and how to dive, how to get food, how to reach the sea floor, mm-hmm. and basically learn all the ins and outs of being a sea otter. And Chris, the other really charming and precious behavior that mom sea otters do that's actually in the book that Zach and Xander and I read that I just love, and I was so happy to find out that it was really true. Yeah, yeah. When their pups are really young and they're not necessarily teaching them how to uh, dive at this point in time or hunt, they will wrap their babies in sea kelp. At, yeah, I've I've heard that. And so, so they, they can't float away. away. <laughs> it's, like it's just so yes, oh, they them, and oh. it's just so precious. And that's in the book. And I, I was I was a little skeptical. I'm not gonna lie, I'm a scientist, so yeah. I'm like, do they really do that? Yeah, but they yeah. do, and it's super precious, and it makes sense uh, because yeah, they don't want them floating away from some of their dive sites. So, but the, around two months or so, the pups will start diving with them. So this precious behavior only lasts for a little while. But yes, the bustleids are just the best. They're, they're so just fun, the, and the mom. I, I mean, they're like moms of the year. I I hope that I can be a good sea otter mom. <laughs> tie your baby down mm-hmm. <laughs> don't exactly. you move yeah well you wish you could tie the other two down so. i know <laughs> yeah a little good luck there yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah uh however i i'm i'm, I'm pretty glad that john is not, definitely he's definitely not a sea otter dad um <laughs> yeah. male sea otters they don't provide any parental no. care to their offspring no. and in fact it's actually been reported in alaskan sea otters and actually in california sea otters a behavior known as hostage behavior. It's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. But what will happen is a male will bump into a pup. But what will happen is a male will find a pup floating on the surface. Maybe it wasn't tethered correctly. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the mom's diving for food. And so basically the male will hold on to the pup, sometimes like forcefully put it underwater or whatever until the female surfaces and then they do a trade. He lets go of the pup and she gives him the food that she just got. <laughs> now, would John do that with your kids? <laughs> Not so far. Uh, or you just say, take them. <laughs> I'm yeah. eating my pad thai. Yeah, this yeah. My pad thai. Yeah. I mean, we are on the, we are definitely like going to be outnumbered. Like, instead, yes. Uh, yes. John says we're going to have to do some sports analogy. Like, we zone defense. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah, were, yeah. we were doing man to man, but now yeah, it's going to be zone one. defense. And so, there might be some hostage behavior on something. I don't know <laughs> what it's going to be. Yeah. But in general, this hostage yeah. behavior, it's, it, I had to look up the article just to double check that it was actually a scientifically Real. reported behavior. And it was um, in aquatic mammals in 2005 by, um, 
by Heidi Pearson and Randall Davis that observed okay. this behavior. And um, and then once again, it was reported in 1990 by Reedman and Estes as well. So it's it's not common, I don't think, but it's... Yeah, uh, a it male, uh, Yeah, uh, a male's got to do what a male's got to do, I guess. He's lazy, bum. Get down there and get your phone <laughs> ding food, you know? know. Like, seriously, she's got to make milk, get food, take care I of the mean, baby, tether all, it. We all know yeah. that women are superheroes. And so this I know, is just you another example I, I, in the animal kingdom of us being warriors. So I, I honor you. you. You are carrying that baby. I get it. So, yeah. Well, that, that's... <laughs> <laughs> sea otters, uh, mustelids. All right, conservation. So they obviously, with these pelts, they were hunted to near extinction, like almost everything in the 1800s. It just, they were hunted, you know, off Japan, Russia, Alaska, and the West Coast of the United States, down in Mexico. So much so that there was only a couple thousand sea otters left in the world. And in a around thousand, 19- like I read one to 2,000. Total. That's it. Total. Total. Like, like of we all were, the subspecies, like combined. Humanity was just, oh, and we're not getting much better. That's why we do this podcast. So the people listening are, are part of the movement, but they were down to a couple thousand, maybe max throughout the world. And they, they started getting protections in the early 20th century. So around 1913. So it is a conservation success story in, in, in that, these couple thousand have now grown to over a hundred thousand, which is awesome. Like that is great. Yes. We're doing great. When you work together internationally on a federal Mm -hmm. level and international level, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean a couple hundred years ago, they thought there was about a million sea otters. So a hundred thousand down from two or up from 2000 is, is really good. Is really good. Now the Southern sea otters are the one that are still in trouble. Like I said, they thought they were extinct, but in the 1930s, they found about 300 on a, in a, one of those rafts, you know, group. And so today there's about 2,300 left. And like they said, they are having some trouble, but conservationists are out there working hard like Enric Sala. So that's a great interview to listen to if you haven't. Episode 183. What organization do you pick? Because there's a bunch. Like, I know a bunch of different ones that are working for sea otters. I, I'm curious to see which one you picked this week. Well, Chris, you're definitely right. There's there's a, a few groups fighting hard for sea otters uh, just here in the States. So I'm sure internationally in other countries, there's ones that I'm missing. A lot of work on sea otter conservation is done in aquariums in, in general. So just going out to your local accredited aquarium, whether it's the Vancouver or the Monterey Bay Aquarium or San Diego. Yeah, the, the the one up in Auckland near me is Sea Life, which I need to go back to, which I don't think they had sea otters, but they do have penguins. And then Aquarium of the Pacific was an amazing one in California. Yeah, uh, so yeah. a lot of those uh, do their own support con- local conservation or researchers that are out there studying and fighting for their survival. But as far as a nonprofit, I went ahead and picked the Sea Otter Foundation Trust. Its nickname is Soft, which is just oh, good. Yeah, super yeah, yeah. cute because they're furry and have super soft and fur. Uh, and their website is www.seaotterfoundationtrust.org. And they have a presence on Facebook and Twitter. So go check them out and follow them, like them, and support them. And Chris, one of the reasons why I picked the Seattle Foundation Trust is because their mission is to basically organize and fundraise for Seattle research, conservation, and education. 
So they give away money mm-hmm. to the groups out there, the individuals that are doing the hard work. And because of their team and their connections in the marine mammal world and, of course, in the conservation and zoological and aquarium world, they know who's doing what. So every year they're funding people that are out there on the front lines doing the hard work, uh, whether it's actually in open water doing conservation legal things or in a zoological or aquarium care facility educating and doing outreach. So I, for me, I thought that's a really nice one where they cover lots of different bases and give money to lots of different places. So anyways, I highly recommend you check out the Sea Otter Foundation Trust.org and see what they're up to. And their website's really great. Uh, you can learn more about them on their website. And we'll, of course, we'll put it on our show notes as well. Yeah, go to our website or you go in the show notes, the link to uh, the web page. And they're actually on the top right now. Dan did a good job where it's now up at the top right there. And these videos I embed so you can see it all on one page. It's it, it, it's really looking sharp. So definitely go check them out. Uh, tips of the week. I mean, we're going to we're going to hammer this again in July, but plastics, plastics, plastics. Have, do you have your reusable water bottle? It's just a reminder Refuse straws, plastic straws. Do not use plastic cutlery and recycle when you can. You know, it, it's a constant battle. It amazes me how much plastic we have in our life. And it's just, you can't escape it, but I do my best. So it's just a reminder out there do your part, you know, help our oceans stay clean, uh, which in turn will, will help sea otters and sea life. So, absolutely, which will also help. Our own selves as well. Yes, always, always. Now, normally we say, stay tuned. Next week, we'll be back with a new species. We're in that window where Angie might have a baby. We we are planning on recording another species or two. But if not, then we have some alternative uh, podcast episodes coming up. Some awesome interviews. We just had uh, a special one uh, that I can't wait to release here. Got another one. I promise you Shoals coming up and a few others. And we have some kid episodes to release. So we've got, we've got content that we're going to be releasing while Angie recovers. Yes. We will not leave you hanging at all. And unless I'm in active labor, we'll be back next week. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we will. We will. We will. We will. Well, great job, mom. I mean, you're doing awesome. You look wonderful. You got that I know. Sorry for all the heavy breathing on the the microphone. I try to lean back when I'm not talking. It's this babysitting. I don't know if it's my age or what, but mm-hmm. with my other two, I wouldn't get so winded, but this current pregnancy, I definitely, I'm, uh, I, I get more out of breath and huff and puff for really no reason, but uh, uh, I guess that's part of bearing life, right? Or it could be a girl. It just sit different than the boys. Who knows? We don't know. Yes. Uh, John, yeah. and I never find out the gender until the big show, the main event. So stay tuned. Oh. Well, I'm excited. Whatever it is, Baby Blueberry is going to be amazing. That's right. So, yes, yeah, another yeah. another conservation hero coming up through the pipes. That's right. Yes, yes. Well, thank you, friend, for doing this, finding the energy. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for baby news or a new species next week. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.